you know, she came clean for a period of time and provided a lot of evidence. That's one of the other things that the media don't talk about is that the original evidence on this on these cases on the different racketeering uh, enterprises that we've discovered, you know, wasn't something that we just, you know, decided one day to go and look at. It's something that was brought to us originally. And it was brought to us for a number of different reasons. It was brought to me, it was brought to another colleague of mine for a number of reasons. And that led to clients who came to us who had been ripped off in the schemes, you know, wanting, wanting justice and certainly wanting to plug holes in, in their systems. If you've been paying attention, you know the global economy is transforming. The BRICS nations want to see the end of the dollar reserve currency, and many countries are joining their effort. The Western banking system is the most fragile it's been since 2008. The highly respected Weiss Research Group accurately provided advance warning on which banks are going to fail with 99.3% accuracy after the 2008 crisis. They are now predicting that a whopping 4,243 banks are vulnerable to failure, and 1,210 of those banks face imminent failure. When this situation comes to pass, it will dwarf the 2008 banking crisis. The only asset that has historically weathered a storm this severe has been precious metals. It has never been a better time to buy gold and silver to protect your family. Contact Miles Franklin at info at milesfranklin.com. Tell them Sarah sent me and you will get the best service and the best prices on gold and silver in the country. That is a guarantee from them to me. Remember, info at milesfranklin.com. Tell them Sarah sent me. Do this now to protect your assets and the ones you love. Welcome to Business Game Changers. I'm Sarah Westall. I have Jacqueline Breger and John Thaler coming to the program. I have been talking about the Breger Report for a while and I've had Dave Hodges on. I had Representative Liz, Liz Harris from Arizona on, and we talked about it. Well, now I got the people on to talk about their investigative work and what's behind this. I said in the past, or we've said it's a 120,000 page uh, evidence-based report. It's now over 150,000 pages, and he's going to talk about that. And these guys aren't schmucks. I mean, Jacqueline Breger has five degrees. She'll talk about it. And John Thaler is an attorney, but he's been doing investigative work like this for over 33 years, working with different law enforcement agencies and with big corporations, trying to clean up and track down corruption. So these aren't just schmucks coming up and talking about it. Now, the mass media, especially in Arizona, because they spoke in front of Congress, the House and Senate in Arizona. And Liz Harris talks about that in my interview and they just smeared these guys because it implicates a lot of people who are in power. And so this whole army came out, but you it's just not fair to smear people, to smear the messenger until you see the evidence that they have. And you we need to. And so he has a book coming out September 19th, and they're going to have over 5,000 documents, everything they claim, they claim they have document proof on. And so people can see for themselves and we're going to talk about how this affects not only Arizona's just a hub. There's over 26 states. I think it's probably broader than that. And it's uh, there's other hubs across the country. And how does this affect all of us? And one thing I say, and I push back quite a bit because he explains that the the money is so the Arizona is so dependent on this money that they're they can't do anything about it. They have to keep this going. And I say, and I'm going to keep repeating this: the cost of corruption in the long run is so much more than the cost of corruption to fix in the short run. And the the states around 
many of them aren't benefiting for this money. So all they're doing is losing by having this corruption there. And we're going to talk about this. So the states that are losing due to this corruption really need to get on board to fight this. And so we need people to understand what's going on so that we can fix these systematic, deep, corrupt problems that we have. And it was never, we're never going to be perfect, but these are beyond what a civilized society can handle and still go forward. That's why we're seeing the fentanyl come through. That's why we're seeing all the human trafficking. That's why we're seeing the borders that are open. That's why we're seeing fixed elections. We've got to get to the bottom of this. And this is really a good start for that. And you're going to see this is like a template of probably what's going on in a lot of other areas. And uh, he's going to go through that. So before we get into this really long interview, I want to remind you about the Freedom Buying Club. You can get the top choice beef without hormones, without antibiotics, without the mRNA vaccines that so many are having, grass-fed from an American ranch where they're raised by their mom, so there's no stress. You can get that with the Freedom Buying Club. It is great. It comes right to your door. It's less expensive than you can get in the grocery stores to your door for this quality of meat. So much of the grass-fed meat that you might get at Sam's Club or Costco or something, that comes from other countries. You don't know what's going on. They might be, are they grass-fed but held in a little bunker? I don't know. And are they getting the, the vaccines? Are they getting antibiotics? Are they getting hormones? I mean, you don't know what's going on with that. So just because it's grass-fed does not mean it's legit. And so to get this quality of meat is usually way more expensive, but you don't, it's not, it doesn't stop with that. You can also get products that are healthy, that can detoxify your home. You're not going to get all the crap in the air. You got to check this out, the freedombuyingclub.com. And I'll have the link below. You need to fill it out and talk to a representative so they can fill you in on what it is. And gotta go because you're not going to be supporting the globalists when you join this club. Okay, let's get into this really good conversation with John Thaler and Jacqueline Breger. I have been wanting to get you on for a while and Jacqueline Breger is also going to be joining us soon. I want to talk about this. Everybody calls it the Breger report because she was the lead investigator, but it was done under your firm, your investigative law firm. Can you talk about what you do and what your firm is and kind of give us this big background? Because people don't, with all the media hit jobs, they don't realize the extensive, extensive background that you have doing this kind of investigative work for governments and different agencies. Can you talk about it? Sure. Uh, and I'll give you a few examples as well. Um, I've been doing this for a little over 33 years. Uh, I was a certified law student in law school. I actually tried cases when I was still a law student. Uh, when I got out of law school, I was hired to do several investigations, and it just became kind of a niche field that most lawyers don't do and probably you know, never would want to. Uh, what I get hired to do a lot is to investigate. Now, I get hired to litigate cases afterwards as well, but initially I'll get hired to investigate. And that can be anything from a real estate ripoff to a credit card ripoff to a bank that's getting, you know, that's having losses and can't figure out where monies are being stolen. It can be a government agency sometimes that knows that it's got fraud within it, but its own internal investigations aren't showing where that's coming from. So I get hired to try to find where everything is, try to put piece it together. And that can be on a national level, that can be on a local level. And at times it's actually been on an international level. 
Uh, I not only have, you know, what's coming out in, in the book report to the governor uh, and the investigation that took place mostly in Arizona, but, you know, I have, you know, five or six other investigations going right now, you know, one in, in, into a massive insurance fraud scandal. Uh, so it's, it's, we have work every day. We don't just sit around talking about this. We do work, we have clients and we try to do right by them. Let's talk, John. You've also done investigations for different government agencies and, um, you've been doing this for a long time with respect. Well, yeah, I mean, let me put it this way. I, I have had the title of special master, which is something that came up recently with the Trump cases. Um, so I've worked as a special master for judges, which means that, you know, I'm the person on the scene handling search warrants, uh, you know, handling the police, handling what they can and can't see, what documents they can and can't take. Uh, I have worked, you know, a, a lot with the U.S. Attorney's Office over the years on, you know, locating is providing for witnesses, bringing them to grand juries, uh, getting testimony done in, in, you know, usually in what we traditionally call white collar fraud cases. Um, you know, and I also work for a lot of private clients, large corporations, and even sometimes small ones, uh, like I said, that are getting ripped off in some way that are having some kind of, you know, significant business problem and require my services to be able to, to help them. Um, it's kind of hard on a daily basis to describe what all that is, but I'll give you one example, just so people have an idea. Uh, a number of years ago, I was contacted by the, the Canadian National Bank. Uh, you know, Canada's banking system is a little bit different than, than ours. Uh, most of their banks are, in a sense, nationalized. The Canadian, Canadian National Bank called me and said, we're losing money in a credit card scam. And part of that scam is taking place in Canada. Part of that scam is taking place in Las Vegas, Nevada. And we know that there are two people who are in charge of the scam. We know that they are getting card numbers as they're coming off the rolls. They're then sending those card numbers to Nevada. The cards are being manufactured. And then what's happening with that is that the cards are not only being manufactured, the cards are being used and cash is being provided, you know, mostly through casino chips. The casino chips then are cashed in by third persons. Uh, and then that's how the bank's getting ripped off. But we can't put the two people together. We can't make a conspiracy case and we can't figure out exactly how they're doing it. So the Canadian bank went to the U.S. attorney's office and, you know, specifically the Treasury Department. They came to me and said, can you work both in Canada and in the U.S. to try to put together a case? And I said, give me six weeks. I'll put together a case. And in six weeks, I could put the two main parties together, the one who was in Canada, the one who was in the U.S. I could put together the witnesses. There was a grand jury formed and I brought the witnesses into the grand jury to testify. And then once the indictments were handed down, I was available both to the RCMP and then to the FBI to take down at the arrest stage, to take down all the people who were involved in the scam. Well, that's good. I mean, that helps everyone. So you've been doing that kind of work for 33 years and you have right. established a, a respected track record. Ja Jacqueline, what is your background? Because you're the report is that we're going to be diving into soon has your name on it. I mean, or people kind of refer to it as the Breger report because you were working for John as a lead investigator on this specific thing. Can you talk about what your background is as well? Hi, of course I can. Um, great to uh, finally join you guys. <laughs> I'm multitasking here. Um, my background, well, firstly, I own an insurance agency, um, but I have five different degrees. I have a degree in um, 
marketing, accounting, financial accounting, um, business statistics, economics, and um, business strategy. So I've done a lot of research <laughs> in, the, in my years, and, and um, it's something that I'm very passionate about doing. So when I met Mr. Thaler um, and he started telling me a little bit about his case, I was like, well, maybe I can help. Um, you know, I have a lot of research experience in everything that I have been doing over my, you know, in my life. And so um, that's kind of how it started. And I have really, you know, become his lead investigator. Um, and uh, it's been, it's, it's been a ride. <laughs> well, I'm sure this, this particular thing has kind of grown into a life of its own. You two uh, spoke at a hearing in front of the Arizona Congress, both the House and the Senate. And you did an explosive report showing that, you know, it's basically it was a summary of 120,000 page. You're going to have to correct me if I'm wrong on this 120,000 page re, um, base of evidence that you summarized for them. And you talked about 26 states being part of this whole racketeering thing. And they were not happy about it. So first, can you talk about what the overall report was and then we're going to talk about how this how they reacted to you and the media reacted and then <laughs> go from there but what was this report well the report primarily indicated that there was you know the, the gist of it was that there is mass corruption in our, in the state of Arizona um particularly in the city of Mesa um and no they were not happy about it because for the time someone actually stood up in front of them and called a spade a spade. You know, um, this was an election integrity um, presentation. And so I did focus primarily on how we had discovered that this corruption had impacted elections in both 2020 and 2022, more specifically 2022 at the time. Um, and, you know, basically I said that they have um, a leak in their system. They have um, a lot of bribed officials, both elected and appointed. Um, I gave an example at the actual, you know, at the hearing, which they were very unhappy about. Um, and, you know, and so this really opened a can of worms because for the, you know, as I say, for the first time, I named names. Um, I said, these are the people that are, you know, of concern. Now, I never said that these people were criminals. I just said that we had found discrepancies in their deeds, in their, in certain things called like AHCCC liens. Um, and so, you know, I said this definitely requires further investigation, but there's enough evidence here to say that, you know, there's a problem. And I invited all of the people at both the Senate and the House to, to contact Mr. Thaler and myself and to sit down with us and to go through these so-called problems in inverted have commas they, that I have found. Have they contacted you? Not one of them have contacted oh. us. Not one of them have sat down with us. And how about the, is, how about any federal or anyone, any law enforcement anywhere well, based we, on that? Okay, go ahead. No, I mean Mr. Thaler has been involved, you know, has been in contact with FBI and with other um DAs across the country. Um, but we, we never really went to the DA in Arizona because we did not know who we could or could not trust. You know, we, okay. we couldn't investigate absolutely every single person. You know, as it is, this investigation has taken four years, which is another thing I think people have missed is that this has taken four years. 
This was not something that we did in three days. So, you know, the only kind of response we got was, well, we need to see everything. Well, sure, but you have to sit down with us for, you know, a week. I mean, this is a four-year investigation. This is not something that we can share with you in a 20-minute phone call, you know, or just send you documents. You won't understand what the, what you know, what it's all about. And, you know, Mr. Thaler was writing the book, but we knew, you know, and that will explain 99.9%, if not 100%, of what we have found, although it's obviously... Um, you know, it's it's a it's a moving target because we're constantly finding more things. But um, yeah, that you know that is basically what you know. None of them none of them came forward really. None of them sincerely came forward. You know, one or two sort of said, "Oh well, we looked at it over the weekend and it was nonsense." Well, you can't look at a four-year investigation over a weekend and you know and actually um, determine. Claim it's you know, nonsense. It's, well, the media yeah. came out in full force smearing everything about this but did they actually look at any of did, did they look at any well, evidence to be able to back the smear jobs they did not one no, no. i mean some of the media contacted us well no i was going to respond to this one of the things to note here that the media has covered up uh is two major parts of this one is is that this was originally a report made a preliminary report made to governor doug ducey the report to Doug Ducey was made to him uh, in May 2022, and that was after you know three years of investigation, meetings with the FBI, uh, meetings with the U.S. Attorney's Office, meetings with several uh, you know several uh, uh, attorneys general in in multiple states. Um, so by the time we got to the presentation, we already knew what we had, and we were very clear you know on the concept of what what we were talking about. Uh, that gets left out of all of the reports. The second part of this is, is that, you know, we have put out a number of short presentations, uh, videos, you know, showing fraudulent documents, how we came to find them, uh, what they connect to, how they connect. And not a single reporter in the mainstream media has reported on a single one of the presentations. So what they say instead is they attack me, they attack my credibility, but they don't once go to any of the documents, any of the evidence, any of the presentations. That's what I'm seeing is that they're they're smearing you as a person as much as possible, the messenger, and not actually looking at the facts. Now, if they don't get to the bottom of this, how bad is this corruption that we're seeing? It's not just Arizona. And is this, I personally, I see it as the crux of a lot of what we're dealing with. And cleaning this up would go a long way to cleaning up this country. Well, I think I think let me go back in time a little bit here, because I think it's important to understand how this came about. This didn't come about originally because of a client. This came about because of, of my former spouse and you know somebody who had been involved directly in the corruption. And when that got discovered by me, really by accident, you know, she came clean for a period of time and provided a lot of evidence. That's one of the other things that the media don't talk about is that the original evidence on this on these cases on the different racketeering uh, enterprises that we've discovered, you know, wasn't something that we just you know decided one day to go and look at. It's something that was brought to us originally, and it was brought to us for a number of different reasons. It was brought to me. It was brought to another colleague of mine for a number of reasons, and that led to clients who came to us who had been ripped off in the schemes, you know, wanting wanting justice and certainly wanting to plug holes in in their systems. I, I think, it's, like I said, one of the hardest parts to do is kind of explain this overall, but I'm going to try to do my best because I think it'll make more sense for the audience. 
Um, what essentially you have going on here is racketeering. Okay, racketeering is a very wide definition of crimes, but usually crimes that involve you know multiple parties and multiple events. Um, in this particular case, the main crime going on here is money laundering. And the money laundering, which goes to Arizona, is huge. It's in the billions of dollars. And it mostly involves single-family residence real estate. So that money is going through purchases of real estate are essentially laundered monies. That's what the, mo the focus of the investigation mostly was about. But along the way, we found insurance fraud. We found medical lien fraud. We found bankruptcy fraud. We found payroll theft. And we also found a great deal of both infiltration and hacking into the databases, uh, both in Maricopa County, in, which, is, which is the Phoenix area, some of the cities in Phoenix, including Mesa and Gilbert, uh, and in the Arizona State computer system. So that a lot of what's gone on here is aided and abetted through you know, infiltrations into the computer systems. That's one of the biggest problems. So when we talk about how do you clean it up, billions of dollars. Uh, my recommendations to to Governor Ducey were that you were going to be spending, you know, in the billions of dollars to have to clean this up because you were going to have to basically scratch every database you've ever created and recreate them. Um, one of the lines that I've used about this is that if you stopped the border crisis tomorrow, uh, because most of the money that flows into Arizona comes from cartels, if you stopped the border crisis tomorrow, if you secured the border tomorrow, Arizona would be a bankrupt state. And this is one of the most fundamental problems of all this and why nothing gets done. The cash flow for Arizona is dependent on the illegal monies. If you took that out of the economy, Arizona would have no economy. And so that's been the problem. Many of you remember Dr. Zelenko, the courageous doctor who saved countless lives using hydroxychloroquine during the pandemic. Dr. Z not only saved lives in the United States, but many countries adopted his protocols and he saved even more lives around the world. Since those early days, him and his team at ZStack developed an entire line of immunity building supplements from Z Detox to Z Shield to Z Night. Now they also have Kids ZStack. It's the same as the adult ZStack, but formulated to protect kids from the onslaught they will see this cold and flu season. What many don't know about Dr. Z was his passion to end child trafficking. Before he passed away, he partnered with Mission Safe Harbor, and now a portion of every sale of Kids Z-Stack is donated to help end child trafficking. Now you can protect your kids while also helping to protect kids everywhere. Buy using the link below or go to sarahwessel.com under shop. Know you are protecting your entire family while also helping to end child trafficking. What per, oh, th th that's a big statement here. So what percentage are you able to um, narrow down? Because Arizona obviously has an economy uh, in addition to just, not just drug money and stuff. There's people who sell stuff and does, but what percentage is this fraudulent black market feeding into Arizona? We think, we think at least 10 to 15%. And that's enough to bankrupt them because if you get rid of that, they're not running at that high of a profit margin. Well, it's worse than that when you think about it. Uh, most people don't understand that when you're looking at a state budget, especially, but also a federal budget, you know, 99% of the, about 75% about of the money that is spent on any budget in any state uh, or, or even in the federal government is earmarked money that you cannot change. So it's the 25% discretionary that you're really talking about.
So any any pet peeve, any pet project, any pet design, anything you want to do, you can't do. So after you pay the monies to the schools, once you have the entitlement monies that go out, uh, once you have the automatic salaries for state workers, uh, it's the rest of the money, which only takes up 25%. If you shut down 25%, if you shut down 10 to 15% of the budget, you would shut down that entire 25% uh, of the of the expenditures, so in other words, you would you, you certainly wouldn't keep the state from functioning. It would run, but you wouldn't have the money. Any program you want to expand, you couldn't expand, and almost every discretionary program you wouldn't be able to pay for. Well, that's almost a good thing, in my opinion. I mean, the basics are covered, and then all the rest is like, okay, now we go after all this corruption money and get back to basics and figure it out. I mean, that sounds like a it, good it, thing. Right. It would, except for the citizens of Arizona who would have kind of a similar problem to what happened in Illinois a few years ago. You know, most people don't realize there is no bankruptcy chapter for states. So even though we we talk about, you know, kind of euphemistically about a state going bankrupt, a state doesn't actually go bankrupt because there is no bankruptcy chapter. So what happens, what happened, most people don't realize is about five years ago, Illinois went bankrupt in the sense that it couldn't pay its bills. It had a budget deficit that was about a third of what it needed to spend. And that resulted not only in huge tax increases, I mean, huge tax increases, especially property tax increases. It's now, and it doesn't get talked about a lot, but after New York and California, it is the third highest state of people moving out. Yeah, and it's starting. It's bad. So are you saying the- that if this thing, if you fix it, then they'd have to raise taxes to make, they'd either have to raise taxes or... Yeah. Or cut programs. Cut, cutting programs and raising taxes, you'd probably see your property taxes double or maybe triple. And so people don't want that. And that's what's happening is they're so dependent on corrupt money that we're stuck in this catch-22 of, I mean, can't that's they it. think of different ways to focus and not, I mean, I don't, I would think that there's better ways to cut ha- Cut a large percentage of your government employees, for God's sake. That would take care of. That would open up a bunch of more budget. But anyways, I mean, there is a solution. You don't have to be just stuck with raising taxes and doing all these things. I mean, you can restructure part of that. That stuff that supposedly is untouchable isn't really untouchable. But we're getting into a different topic. Well, but I would look, I would, I would tell you, especially with Arizona, if you look back to what happened during the Great Recession, uh, when Jan Brewer was was governor of the state, you know, they had this problem, obviously, because all of a sudden, you know, there's no there's no revenues, uh, kind of like what COVID did, but you know, there's no revenue. Um, one of the reasons was because it killed the housing market. And what happened when the Arizona housing market got killed? You had huge deficits in Arizona. Now, Brewer raised some sales taxes and did some other things, which are not typically Republican, but she did them. And she did them on a temporary basis. And as the economy changed, you know, the, the state made back money and it, and it was able to, you know, to jettison, you know, the tax increases. Um, but that is the problem. If you really shut this all down, especially shut down the money laundering, you're going to not only have a huge, significant drop in housing prices. Uh, But you're going to have a huge drop in the housing economy because now you don't have those purchases and those purchases, as we'll explain in a lot of detail in the book, those purchases wind up increasing property values artificially. So you'd have a a precipitous drop in property values. Uh, You'd have a precipitous drop in the economy Uh, because keep in mind what, what people I think sometimes don't understand is that 
you know, drug money, of course, is illegal. If I sell you drugs and you give me money, that's that's illegal. The money is illegal. If I make a hundred bucks and I put it in the bank, nobody's going to question that. But once you get past ten thousand dollars, banks have reporting requirements. So the money doesn't go into banks. It obviously goes back to various sources, but it also works its way through the economy. Um, you know, the, the drug, not the drug dealer so much, but the drug supplier, the person who's supplying, you know, $100,000, $500,000 worth of drugs is putting that money into these houses. He's putting the money into buying cars. He's putting the money into other tangible assets. So you have an economy that gets run by this illegal money because the money flows into the economy. And if you take all of that out, what you'd have is a dead state. Um, you'd have you'd have kind of a death spiral situation similar to what you have in San Francisco or well, really more so what you have. I'm going to push back a little bit on that, because that's only if you don't restructure the entire state based on the fact that you have a lower uh, revenue coming in and you you get smarter. I mean, there are some business ways that you can do this. You need smart business people. You can't have normal politicians that don't have a clue. But you do, you really need to restructure the entire um, economy around the fact that this is no longer going to be there. There it, there are methods you can do. Um, the bloated government services need you need to run more effectively and and take care of it. So I won't ever say that that by getting rid of corruption you're going to destroy the economy. I, I I think there's a hidden cost to corruption that is so expensive that by getting rid of it at the in the long run you're going to thrive and flourish. But you have you, you to go through that painful period of restructuring. But you'd have one other problem, and this is one of the bigger deals here, is that you would have to, right now, we can prove beyond any reasonable doubt uh, that the Maricopa County database is infiltrated, that documents both for the court system and for the recorder's office are routinely removed, changed, and reloaded back up into the system. Uh, that means you're going to have to totally, completely redo the Maricopa County database. You have that same exact problem going on beyond that. Uh, you have this problem also happening in things like uh, the state databases. Um, one of the things we talk about in the book, one of the things that's gotten a lot of attention um, is that, you know, both the uh, NAU, uh, Northern Arizona University, uh, ASU, Arizona State University and University of Arizona, their databases have been totally compromised. And as a result, one of the things that's happening in Arizona, and it's been happening for years, is that, you know, not only are it, you have two things going on. One, you have individuals receiving degrees and advanced degrees oftentimes who have no education in the subject matter whatsoever. So that's the problem. And, you know, one of the things we talked about a lot is phantoms, um, you know, phantom individuals, people who don't exist, who look like they do on paper, who are also in, you know, say the ASU database. Um, so by the time you spend the money closing down these databases and totally rebuilding them, you're talking about billions of dollars. And if you do that at a time where you're also losing all of the revenue, you got a big problem. So I agree with you that in terms of how do you restructure? Sure. I think there's a lot of things you can do to restructure governments. Um, you know, my background is in political science and specifically in public administration. I think there's a lot of things you can do, but you're also going to spend billions. That's fair. That's fair. But I'm not going to ever say, I mean, the long run cost of having a corrupt society is way more than the short term cost of fixing it. You know, For if I can interject, I think what we, you know, what what we are saying is, I mean, what we're not saying is that we don't want this corruption to be fixed. Obviously, the corruption has to they has someone has to take care of this corruption and it needs to be taken care of. Um, you know, John is not advocating that 
you know, let's keep the corruption in place to keep Arizona alive. But, you know, he is pointing out the pitfalls of this corruption and what it's going to take for the Arizona you know, and, and the impact it will have on the Arizona economy and, you know, and on um, the, 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 the residents of Arizona. And, you know, it's very you know, real. It's not- Dealing with corruption is very real, but it's really important. You know, I have a business background, uh, engineering background, you know, practically a mathematics degree. It's really important that people understand that in the long run, the cost of corruption is astronomically higher than what it will be to fix it. Well, no, no, we, we agree. Let me, say, let me say something about this. Uh, I, our biggest issue with this is to say this. When you ask, why doesn't this get solved? Why doesn't anyone care? Why doesn't anyone look at it? Why doesn't anybody in government look at it? Um, these would be the reasons I would give you is because, you know, if they do what they have to do to fix it is something that to them is untenable. You and I may totally agree that this should be fixed because the cost of corruption winds up being so much more in the long run. And our book, will, I think, will say that for sure. Good, good. Um, but okay. the reason why you get what you get, because your original question was about reporters um, and about government officials. Um, there have been several government officials in Arizona who have contacted me who are interested, who do want to see evidence, who are, who are, you know, who care about this subject. I don't want to say it's nobody because that would be very unfair. Um, I don't use their names because they prefer not to have their names used. And that should tell you almost everything you want to know about That's this. Right. When I've got a government calling me and saying, um, I want to see the evidence. I really do want to review it. It really does matter to me, but please don't tell anybody I made the phone call. Um, you know, that's but that's that tells you but that's normal. Right. I mean, when you guys come forward with one hundred and twenty thousand pages of evidence and you have a background, a respected background, you guys aren't just yahoos coming in and you're saying all these things. And for them to just write it off with no investigation is not normal journalism. That's just well, not normal. What, Something is happening here. That, well, one of the things that we've done is that when we have gotten that, you know, when we've gotten the. Uh, like, for example, the sheriff of, of, of Maricopa County, you know, put out a, you know, was was asked repeatedly, what have you done on this? What have you looked at? Have you looked at any of this? And he said, oh, yeah, 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 we looked at this and we, we didn't find anything. So I immediately put out a press release and I said, OK, tell me what it is you think you looked at. Did you do this? Did you do this? Did you then look at this? Did you then connect it to this? Did you then examine this? Did you have a handwriting expert review this? Did you have a forensic analysis done of this? On and on and on. And I've laid out, you know, did you do any of these things? Because if you didn't do any of these things, your statement is utterly worthless. That's right. And of course, they respond. They don't respond. And I've done the same thing with, you know, several. There were several members of uh, the legislature who did this, who said, "Oh, yeah, yeah, we spent a weekend talking about this, and we called an FBI friend, and we decided there wasn't anything to this." And I said the same thing. Well, did you do this? Did you do this? Did you look at this? Did you examine this? Did you notice this with this? Did you look at this with this? Did you compare these signatures? Did you compare these? so on and so forth and just you know rapid fired the issues at them and said tell me that you did all these things and that you found nothing there and of course you get no response because they don't because they didn't do the homework they didn't get the foundation now it is fair it is fair for them to say for the fact that maybe there isn't anything here i'm not going to say but without doing the homework you kind of have to assume there is and with all what you guys have put together and your background you kind of assume there is but there could not be but you got to do your homework to figure it out because it doesn't make sense 
Well, one of the things we put together was we put together um, a, a video presentation. It runs about 30 minutes. I know it's available on Rumble uh, that, you know, consists of appointment documents by Adrian Fontes, who's now the secretary of state of Arizona. Uh, he was the Maricopa County recorder for a number of years, and he was during the 2020 election. And we dug into the records and we found 14 separate appointments to positions uh, in the election integrity area of the recorder's office that were totally completely falsified. I mean, there's no question that they are falsified. Uh, so how the can there be the nothing there when you have I, proof like that? Yeah, I, I, well, I mean, and the presentation is pretty extensive. We not only look at the actual face of the documents, we then go to the alleged individuals who were appointed and we show that the signatures on their deeds, their personal deeds, trust deeds and, and warranty deeds don't match the signatures on the appointment documents. We show that the alleged notary of those documents is not, in fact, a notary. Uh, and that we actually can identify the, the person who falsified the notarizations on the documents. We can show that the timing of the documents isn't, is not even legal. Uh, in some cases, somebody was appointed, allegedly, uh, in 2019 and then didn't actually get approved until December of 2020, literally a year later. Um, we can show so many falsities on this on the face of these documents. Uh, and so, like I said, it's about a 30 minute presentation that takes you through some of the, our investigation and why we know these are false and how we know they are false. Um, we've done also a, a, a presentation about 30 minutes long or so on deeds to show how officials use deeds to accept bribes. Uh, to get advantages, you know, to get mortgage advantages that other people don't get, which in essence are a bribe. Um, we show the documents. We show you know, a number of officials with signatures on documents that don't match. And some of them are so uh, they're not even a close call match. Like it wasn't even like somebody it's was obvious. trying. It's obvious. So when the so now the, the, uh, the proof is you've given enough proof to so to show that there's something here and they still don't want to go. Now, how many of these people, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it, how many of these people who are smearing you or who are so anti this are probably involved? Well, I would say I would say you've got three categories of people here. You've got the ones who are directly involved and the ones who are directly involved. You know, I, I'm not sure do a lot of smearing, but certainly you know, they don't do it publicly themselves, but they'll send out surrogates to do it. So that's, that's right. one one type. The, the next type, you know, so they, 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 you know, and a great example of this is Ben Toma, who is the speaker of the, the Arizona House. Um, you know, there's a big, big issue about this because Ben Toma you know, indirectly owns a piece of Runbeck Election Services, which is the company that counts the votes. Uh, oh, and, and, and that's an obvious conflict of interest. Yeah, I, I'll, and I'll draw the I'll draw the map for you here. Runbeck Election Services is run by a guy named Runbeck, but the COO of the company is a guy named Jeff Ellington. Jeff Ellington is not only the COO of Runbeck; he's the COO of another company owned by the Toma family called Precision Arrow which feeds in directly into Black Mountain, which is a, oh, wait, real estate investment company. And that's all the Toma family. Now, what Ben Toma says, he says, oh, I don't have anything to do with elections. I, I, don't, I don't have anything to do with that company. My brothers handle that. Except that those are the kinds of conflicts of interest that shouldn't exist. Now, one of the things we do in the book is we explore run back election services. We have an awful lot to say about them and, and an awful lot that's not good. But one of the things that just happened yesterday is that one of the Toma subsidiary companies just bought a controlling interest in Runbeck. So not only 
do they have a, a, a crossover of the CEO of the COO, Jeff Ellington, but they actually now have a controlling interest in the company itself. Jeez. So, I mean, it's just like, no, okay. So Arizona is just laden with it. They don't want to fix it. It's like kicking the can down the road when it comes to fixing our economy and all sorts of other things, because it's so painful in the short run right. that they're willing to have this huge bomb hit us later. Okay, so how many other states are involved in this? And, and the one thing we talked about before we started is this is not, you just happen to talk in front of the Arizona Senate or, or Congress. It's not just Arizona. It is a 26 state, at least. How many states are involved? And is it all yeah. like what Arizona is yeah. like? Go ahead. Yeah, I'll talk about that for a moment because we, you know, the presentation was obviously in Arizona because that's where we were invited to do it. And a lot of the focus is on Arizona because it is a border state that receives a large scale amount of illegal money from drugs. I, and everybody knows this. I mean, that's not that's not exactly the world's biggest secret. Um, in fact, I will say something else about this. You know, not just it's not just me. Um, Harvard University does a study every year in their public policy department on the most corrupt states in the country, and it ranks them. Uh, Arizona comes out number one every year. Wow. Um, so it's not just saying it. It's Harvard what are the University. Top 10? Do you have the top 10? I uh, want to well, list. If you got that, I'll put it up for people. Can They can see it. I, I'd yeah, love to well, have that. Well, to you, but, you, but it's pretty much what you would expect because it's it's places where, you know, you've heard about corruption for years. Um, yes. You know, certainly, certainly Illinois has this problem. New York has this problem. California has this problem. Um, you know, but you'd be surprised at some of the other states that you wouldn't that you wouldn't necessarily expect. But one of the parts of this is that, that again, you know, didn't get attention is that I've not only met with the FBI, um, but I've met with attorneys general in multiple states uh, because the real estate transactions don't just exist there. In fact, my original investigation on transactions involving involving drug monies didn't start in Arizona and didn't start in 2019. It actually started way, way, way back in 2014. In 2014, I was asked to look at a connection between drug monies going through properties in Midwestern states, and I'll name the states in a second, going into properties in Arizona. Mm -hmm. The Midwestern states involved uh, are mostly Illinois, Indiana, and Iowa. And the monies came originally from cocaine trafficking. Uh, there were the U.S. Attorney's Office ran an investigation. Uh, there's a story in the book I talk about in the book exactly how this investigation came about because it was a very accidental find, just like some of what we've done. You know, sometimes you find one thing and it opens the door to 10 other things. Um, you know, a small investigation in Chicago into into some drug sales, into some cocaine sales, opened up the door to a massive, massive money laundering operation in those three states, Indiana, uh, Illinois and Iowa where brokers, real estate agents were being paid, you know, pretty good commissions to essentially take money, cash money from drug sales and run it through single family residences. So they buy, you know, with cash, you know, $150,000, $200,000 properties, leave the money in for about two years, sell the properties. Then the question was, where was the money going? And what, what the U.S. Attorney's Office believed at the time was that a lot of the monies were flowing from there into Arizona. So my first my first connection with any of this was actually in 2014, and it was with drug monies being run uh, from those three states into Arizona properties, then out of Arizona properties into Panamanian corporations, which is a pretty common setup. As, as exotic as that may sound, it's actually a pretty common setup. Sure. Uh, 
Panamanian corporations are notorious for holding drug monies and other illegally made monies. Um, they have a lot of protections. Uh, they're very hard to trace. They don't have the name of any particular participant on them. Usually the lawyer's office is the only name on them, and they're very well hidden and protected. So my job at the time in 2014 was to investigate that. And we concluded that there were, in fact, monies. We had no idea how much, but we did, in fact, conclude that there were a lot of monies flowing out of properties in these Midwestern states directly into properties in Arizona. And we could actually find and name the properties and find the documents and show how they were going from there into a particular Panamanian corporation and then being funneled back out into more Arizona properties. Well, let me ask you, if there's you're saying there's about 26 states involved. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. How many of those yep. states are benefiting from this money laundering or is it really just a few that are really reaping the money benefits and the other ones are just facilitating the process? Yeah, I would say it's exactly like that. Um, you know, one of the reasons why the Midwest issue started was because most people don't think of it this way. We, we mostly think of drugs and border states. Uh, Chicago, however, is a huge hub for drugs and for drug money. Uh, I mean, huge and yep. much, much larger of actual dollars than Arizona. So if you're making the kind of cash that was being made in, 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 in a state like, like Illinois in Chicago, you had to have a place to put it. And, you know, it, it, for people who are not from the Midwest, who are from, you know, the East Coast or West Coast, I, I'm not sure that they fully understand that when you talk about these, these states like Illinois, Iowa, Indiana, I don't think, you know, people think of them as being very separate states, but in a lot of ways, they're not. They're really a region. So putting the monies into those states was a logical, you know, just a logical conclusion for the problem of what do you do with the cash? There wasn't anything particular about these states that, that made a difference. It's just border wise, you know, geographically, they're close sure. uh, with those states. From what I can gather and from what I've seen. And, and like I said, my book talks about a very specific case, the, the, what's called the Harriet Cooper case where monies flow, flowed through this particular real estate broker uh, and directly into the into you know single family residences. Probably very little benefit to the states. Not enough houses bought, not enough, you know, it spread out through a whole assortment of areas. So there was no real concentration of monies and nothing that would have in and of itself raised property values, or, you know, artificially or otherwise. And probably not enough money coming out of those transactions to go into you know, buying cars, going to restaurants, using hotels and so on and so forth, the things that, that help spur an economy. So, you know, for most of these other states, it's it, it, it may be fairly widespread, but it's spread out. Arizona has a geographic problem. And that is that for the most part, you have two major cities or at least two major metropolitan areas. You know, you have the Tucson area, maybe to a small degree, you have Yuma. And then of course you have the Phoenix area. So you don't have the kind of spread. I mean, we have 8 million people, I think, in the state of Arizona, you know, which is not very many. And, you know, obviously most of the people live from Phoenix and South. Um, so you have a much smaller geographic area in which this is going on. Um, in states like Illinois, Iowa, Indiana, you have much larger states, much larger communities to spread the cash over. Okay, so if the Arizona problem got fixed, it wouldn't hurt the other states. The other states would be happy because the corruption wouldn't be bleeding into their states. So the, the containment of this issue, as far as what you're looking at, would really be contained in a few states. 
which is one of the reasons why I've had meetings with, for example, the California Attorney General, the New Mexico Attorney General, the Colorado Attorney General. Uh, one of the reasons for these meetings, and even in Texas with, with investigators, uh, Texas investigators, Nevada investigators, one of the reasons we do this is because these states have the ability to put pressure both on the federal government and federal agencies to shut down some of what's going on in Arizona. Uh, and and you know so if you can't get the if you can't get the work affected in Arizona, you can certainly do it by going to the other states and showing how the monies coming out of Arizona are now negatively impacting their states. That's right. You show the negative around, and then you put the pressure on. But right. by Arizona managing themselves better, like the other states are, they can get themselves out of this. It takes higher level management skills to do this, business skills, all that kind of stuff. And I just, I know they can get themselves out of this by thinking about things differently, but they have to be willing to do it. And the pressure needs to occur. Now I got to ask you, this is pretty serious. What you, the accusation, accusations that you're bringing forward, have you had any kind of death threats and are you worried about that? Uh, I've had in the last four years, three or four years, I guess since 2019. So four years now, I have had six attempts made on my life. Um, two of which nearly succeeded. A third one actually um, was a mistake where they actually beat up and, and, and severely beat a client of mine, uh, mistaking him for me. Oh, um, I'll, I'll tell you about that one a little bit because that happened in my home. Um, I was actually away for a day. I had a client come in for a series of meetings. Um, I was away for a day in between there. Uh, my home was broken into by four individuals dressed as Mesa a city of Mesa police officers uh, who mistook him for me, uh, beat him severely. And when they realized it wasn't me, they basically zip tied him and threw him into the garage while they searched my house for, you know, for some evidence that they believed I had on the, on, on certainly the city of Mesa and others. Um, you know, he managed to escape after about five or six hours uh, was then taken to the hospital. Fortunately, he's recovered. Uh, but he provided he has provided a and, and has since 2020 or 2021 has provided a formal declaration under penalty of perjury notarized uh, explaining exactly what happened to him that night. Now, were they real police officers or just dressed as police officers? We, we, we don't know what we know for sure is that how they were dressed, um, but that we cannot identify. There's only one who we can identify as at least having been a police officer. The other three we cannot identify specifically. So Jacqueline, have you had any situations like that? I don't know if she's still here. Uh, okay, we'll move on. I don't know if she's well, still I can, here. Go ahead. I can, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Okay. Um, I am, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I have not had anything directly um any direct attacks. I have had things where like my computer has been broke, you know, has been um, hacked into. Um, my Wi-Fi has definitely been hacked into a number of times, um, you know, things like that. But I haven't had any, you know, actual attacks on my life or threats or anything like that. Um, so I'm grateful. Well, yeah, no kidding. And the best way to keep attacks from happening is to stay public. I know it's kind of and counterintuitive, but you, you need to. Yeah. Yeah. And that well, I have done, of, you know, yeah, and part of the reason, part of the reason for the book um, is because, you know, look, we, you, you talked about 120,000 pages. We've actually reviewed now probably 150,000 pages of documents and that, that may be understating it. 
Um, the book is is done in a very specific way, which is it's it's something that hasn't really been done before. And that is we've created about almost 500 pages of narrative uh, that take you through this situation. And of course, as I think, you know, we haven't talked about yet. You know, I have a child who is abducted in all of this. Um, so it takes you through, you know, the part of the story about the investigation. It takes you through the story, you know, with respect to what happened to my son, McKinley. Um, and and it then provides as footnotes over 5000 pages uh, of documents and evidence uh, to, you know, to back up everything that we're saying. If we make a statement in the book, we have a footnote to a specific document, a specific set of lines in the document, et cetera, to prove what we are saying. You know, that's something that could not be done in a short you know, presentation, no you know, in a 30 presentation. Yeah. You know, before the legislature, you know, we had no way of doing that. Um, but we do have a way of doing that in the book. So like I said, you're not only getting the book, which is now roughly about 500 pages, but you're going to get with it another 5,000 pages of footnoted documents on a separate website that you can easily go to. That they match up by the numbers. So if you're looking at you know, no, you know, footnote number 167, you can go to the website and look at the document that goes with that. And there'll be additional narrative uh, outside of the book you know, that goes with that document if, if that document is not self-explanatory so that you can see with arrows, diagrams, et cetera, exactly what we're looking at, exactly what we're talking about. So when we say we have somebody's handwriting and we've identified the handwriting, for example, we will take you directly to the forensic question document examiner report that identifies that handwriting. Um, you know, when we say we've got, you know, deed matches where the, where the notarizations on these 10 deeds for these officials are all the same person and it's none of the people listed as notary, you know, we're going to take you to the report that the document itself and to the report that says that um, so that people will be able to literally see in, in as much real time as they want uh, all of the evidence that that provides, you know, that provides the basis for what we're saying. And again, you know, when we went to one of these people have to understand when we went before the legislature in Arizona. Um, we were asked to do this about three days, four days before the event. You know, we had no connection directly with anybody in the legislature. We hadn't talked to anybody there. We did mostly the executive office to Governor Ducey's office, but not to legislative members yet. Um, and so when we were contacted, you know, we were given what was supposed to be about 30 minutes of presentation time with about 30 minutes for questions and answers if anybody chose to ask them. Um, you know, Jacqueline, you know, obviously did the presentation. She did about 30 minutes. And she said specifically, look, we are providing some documents. You know, we didn't even have time to put a PowerPoint together. So he said, we are providing some documents that are marked so you can see what we're looking at. And by the way, one of those documents was specifically the declaration from my client about having been severely beaten in my home. Um, you know, that's something else that doesn't get reported by the press. That's in that packet. What we then said to them is we said, look, we have reviewed 120, at that point, 120,000 pages of documents. Um, we can't make a presentation in 30 minutes or even in an hour that does any of this justice. We invite you to contact us. We invite you to come see. We will sit down with you. We will show you what we have, how we did it, how this investigation progressed. We will tell you the story of it. We will show you the forensic reports. And remember, this isn't just a matter of us saying this handwriting matches this or this matches that. We have experts who do this. We have experts who are, you know, who are not only above board, but are considered the finest in their field, who look at this stuff for us, who review all of these documents. You know, in addition to me, I have two other lawyers, uh, you know, John Stanley and Gary Fielder, who review all of the things that I look at. You know, one of the things here is that because Jacqueline did the presentation, people don't really catch the fact 
that this is a team effort. Uh, Jacqueline is certainly one of the most valuable people probably of all time in doing this, especially because of both her background, her knowledge, her education, and, you know, her ability, you know, to see these kinds of things. But I have a team of people who do this. I have researchers who research. I have people who can get through the internet much better than I can. I have forensic doc experts who do what they do. I have lawyers who do what they do. You know, it is a team effort. And one of the things that, you know, will be in the book is the acknowledgements. People have asked me, well, who's on your team? Well, we want to talk to them. Well, I don't know if they want to talk to you or not, but they are acknowledged in the book. And, you know, you will see something different than I think what most people have thought, which is, you know, we have a team of people who are on this, who review this stuff. Uh, we don't just come to a conclusion because we feel like it. Uh, if anybody has any doubts or objections or problems, that's not a conclusion we then make. We are very sophisticated in how we do this. And that's kind of how you survive doing this for 33 years. You know, this is not my first rodeo. It's not the first time that my life has been threatened. The book will talk about an experience in 2011 where I was literally nearly run over by a truck, a, a, an 18-wheel truck, uh, to stop me from investigating something. It's, it's unfortunately not a new experience. It's an unfortunate part of the job. And, you know, I, I don't walk around with guns. I don't walk around with weapons. But I'm very careful about where I am, the people I'm around, you know, what's what my environment is like. Uh, but it does come with the territory sometimes. And the worse the people are and the closer you get to them, the the more dangerous the situation gets. Once That's the right. book is out. Yeah. And like you said, once the book is out, you know, it's public enough and the documents are public and everybody can see them. You know, what are you going to do now? You can be mad at me, but you can't stop the flow.